And good morning. Uh, now on Fuzzy Logic, we'd usually like to say this time of the year, Happy New Year. But I can't think of... Uh, well, it just doesn't seem right to say that now, given the terrible, terrible developments. I can't think of a worse start to the year, not just for what it's done to the people, to the landscape and to the ecology, the wildlife of our country, but what does this mean for our future? Is this our new future? Is this what we are doing to ourselves? Well, I can't think of a better guest uh, this morning to uh, help us talk through this topic than Professor Will Steffen. Now, Will Steffen is a, uh, an eminent climate scientist and he's former director of the ANU Climate Institute. He's the uh, former executive director of the International Geosphere and Biosphere Program and he's a member of the Climate Council. Good morning, Will. Good morning, Rod. Now, Will... The fires, obviously, are very prominent in our thinking right now. What's, uh, what's your take on what we've seen over the last few months? Well, I think these statistics are, are pretty staggering. Uh, the last I saw were uh, around uh, 10 million hectares have been burnt. Uh, and by comparison, uh, the area of England as a country is about 13 million hectares. So we're approaching... Uh, burning an area about the size of England. Certainly it's bigger than some countries, for example, Denmark. Uh, I think the toll has been 28 human lives, last I checked. Uh, well over 2,000 structures. Several villages have been basically wiped out. And, and to me, very, very sadly, around a billion uh, animals, that's mammals, birds and reptiles, have been sent to a screaming, burning death by all of this. So it's, it's to use the word that everyone's using, including the firefighters, this is unprecedented. We haven't seen anything like this before. Yeah, it, it's almost beyond belief, isn't it? And insects as well, I understand, that oh, have yeah. taken a real toll. And a little thing like an insect, we tend to hit them with the fly spray and so on. We don't really count for what their significance is. Now, would you, would you say that what we've seen with these fires is unexpected? Is it, uh, is, does it surprise you what we are experiencing? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I think uh, massive fires were actually uh, projected by the, even the early climate models two or three decades ago. Um, CSIRO, um, which was doing some really uh, globally pioneering work back then on climate change, um, their models were sh and analyses were showing that we were facing risks of, of much more severe bushfires around about 2020. So they were spot on, uh, regrettably, in, in, in looking ahead and seeing this is a big risk that Australia is facing. Obviously, we didn't do anything to try to avoid this risk. The rest of the world has done very little to avoid these sorts of risks and now we find ourselves in 2020 with um, with these uh, these peaks into the future that scientists were giving back then, these warnings that scientists were giving back then unfortunately are coming to pass Yeah, it's I don't know what we, we can do about that, maybe we'll talk more about that later in the show uh, and I want to ask you also about models because uh, the predictive power of science is something you've alluded to. But before we go into that, let's just talk about the drivers of the fires themselves. What, what's behind them now? Well, I think the best way to look at the drivers is to look at a an uh, index 
uh, that the Bureau uses to look at fire danger. Fire, it's called the Forest Fire Danger Index. So a number of factors play into dangerous fire conditions. Um, one is obviously the conditions on the day that fires break out. They tend to break out on days that are unusually hot. Uh, obviously, if they're windy days, there's, there's more problems with fires getting out of control and days of low humidity. But equally important is the periods leading up to these days. In other words, the, the weeks and months and even the years leading up. Uh, and if those years have been uh, increasingly hot and increasingly dry, the vegetation is obviously conditioned to burn. And so we see all of these factors at play uh, in the fires that we, we're seeing here. We saw very unusually dry weather in southeast Australia, particularly during the cool season, which is the important season for our rainfall. Uh, we've had three uh, winter seasons in a row with exceptionally low rainfall in the Murray-Darling Basin and along the southeast coast. Uh, excessive heat. Uh, in fact, if you look at last year, 2019, that was both the hottest and the driest year on record uh, in Australia. So so these these forests in eastern Australia were absolutely set up to burn. So there's a combination of immediate causes and the longer term trends. So the temperature in Australia, the, the climate for the current year, or the past year, is 1.52 degrees. Is that correct? Yes, above the 1961-1990 average. I think that's the base period the Bureau uses here. And the average rainfall across the country was 270, something like 277, that? 277, something like this. It was, I think it was on the order of 40% below yeah. uh, normal. But I, I think even more pronounced is looking at the last two or three years and looking at the southeast, the Murray-Darling Basin. So it wasn't just last year. It's been a longer period of, of low rainfall, so this, dry this, conditions. This outstrips the millennium drought, I think, doesn't it? I'm not sure. The Millennium Drought was much longer, so we have to see how much longer this lasts. What we can say, which I think is more relevant, is to look at the last 20 or 30 years in southeast Australia and, and Tasmania. What we see there is a long-term drying trend in the cool time of the year, the, the, the um, April to um, September, October season. Now, this is important because that's the most important period. That's the so-called southern wet season. And that's important for agriculture, obviously, because that's the growing season. Uh, it's important for urban water supplies. That's when a lot of the dams are topped up and so on. Uh, and that's that's been diminishing uh, over that long period. It's actually even more pronounced in southwest Western Australia, where they've seen uh, larger drops in rainfall since about the 1970s. And we, and we know that climate change is playing a pretty important role in this uh, because the Frontal systems that bring this cool season rainfall come from the Southern Ocean. And as the climate warms, uh, they're being pushed further south by a degree of two of latitude. I think last time we met, Will, you were saying that Melbourne can expect to experience the climate of more Is that right? That, those are some model, model um, studies that have been done to show, to give an idea of, of what the climate by, around, I think, around mid-century might be. Uh, but a point I'd like to make is the climate seems to be moving faster than some of the uh, projections that we've made in the past. In other words, the more we learn about climate change, the riskier it actually looks. So the the, the projections have been on the conservative side? Is what is yeah, the... I think a good way to look at that is, is to look at the IPCC reports. And they publish what are called the burning embers diagrams, which are a, a series of bar graphs that go from from uh, very mild colors to 
pink to to toward bright red as as the risk comes up. So it's it's risk uh, of ecosystems. It's it's risk of of large scale discontinuities like tipping points and so on. And this was uh, this methodology was started with the third assessment report of the IPCC, which I think was around 2000, 2001. And so we now have four versions of that as we go through time. So from 2001 to 2018, where this was used in, a, in an IPCC special report uh, on 1.5 and 2 degrees, uh, the Paris targets. What we see over that nearly 20-year period is that more serious impacts are now predicted at lower temperature increases. So the overall message is the more science progresses uh, and the more we learn about climate change, the more dangerous it looks even at lower temperatures. Uh, that's that's very daunting. And uh, the prospect of exceeding two degrees, Let, let's, before we go on to that, uh, let's look, come back to the medium term. Now, I've read some reports about the a thing called the Indian Ocean Dipole. Dipole. Yeah. And, of course, we were familiar now in Australia with the uh, El Nino. Yeah. Can you just explain about the Indian Ocean Dipole? And I, I've heard that it's changing and it's going to have an immediate or soon effect on our situation. Yeah. So, so, so if you know, uh, we, and we're in Eastern Australia, we're more familiar with ENSO, El Nino Southern Oscillation. And that's a coupled ocean atmosphere system that sort of moves across the Pacific in one phase, the El Nino phase. Uh, it tends to bring dry, hot conditions to Australia and the reverse to South America and so on. So we know that. The Indian Ocean Dipole is somewhat similar, but it operates on the other side of Australia. It operates over the Indian Ocean, and you have positive and negative uh, conditions of that dipole on our side of the Indian Ocean or the other side. It does a similar thing. When we, when we have what's called a positive Indian Ocean Dipole, it tends to bring uh, drier conditions to Australia. So it blocks fronts that come off the Indian Ocean, penetrate across northwestern Australia, and if they're strong, they can actually come across the centre. They're the fronts that sometimes can bring, say, an autumn break to South Australia and Eastern Australia. When the Indian Ocean uh, dipole is so-called positive, that leads to drier conditions across Australia. Is that where it is now? And that's where it is now, and in fact, it's it's at record strength. I think it's weakening now, but uh, a few months ago, it was the strongest positive Indian Ocean Dipole recorded. Now, we don't know why that's the case, and we don't know whether there's a link to climate change with how that behaves. Um, so that's something we have to work with. So does that mean we're having a, a double whammy effect of the El Nino? And, no. Uh, no? Because El Nino is neutral. Oh. So we do not have a strong El Nino event now. So this is interesting because this exceptionally dry hot weather is occurring in the absence of an El Nino. Ah. Uh. Okay, is there any coupling? What's the connection between the two systems? Between the that I couldn't tell you. I haven't studied that myself. Uh, I, I, I obviously at at some level they're all coupled because when you look, for example, at El Nino, the Enso phenomenon, it's coupled to the loss of Arctic sea ice. I can go through. There's some some big dynamics there. Uh, this this is one system. This is we're getting onto this topic of the Earth system. So these things aren't totally independent of one another. There is one overall atmospheric circulation. It has its own regional patterns and so on uh, yes. that we study in isolation. 
uh, but in fact they're connected. And, and uh, so that's something that we've been studying more recently in this new area of Earth system science of, of what some of these connections are and how they're related to more well-defined states of the Earth system, for example. Yes, and I imagine that's a really, really complicated thing too. And, and I do recall the first time we met, Will, that uh, you were quite emphatic. You said we talk about system, singular, not yes. systems, yeah. plural. Yeah. We're going to go to a song break after a bit more of a chat, but right. uh, I'm going to get you to to drill in a little bit right. to that. But so many so many questions, Will, uh, and our guest today is Professor Will Stephan, uh, climate scientist, talking us, to us here today on fuzzy logic. Now, uh, tipping points is obviously a big thing in everybody's mind and there's a few of those the, the methane uh, in the tundra in the uh, arctic region and so on but uh, the fires what's the impact of these fires uh, I have read that we have emitted because of the fires a huge amount of carbon monoxide and a separate question is carbon monoxide versus dioxide but the bigger question is, is this a type of tipping point that we're now experiencing? I, I think it is. Obviously, to be really sure about that, we have to do an analysis, and that'll take some time after the, after the fire season. Uh, but how would such a tipping point work? Um, these are actually fairly common in, in uh, ecosystems. Uh, and the way to look at it is, is ecosystems exist in, in reasonably well-defined states, um, most ecosystems, unless they've been disturbed by humans, and many of them are now disturbed by humans, have some intrinsic resilience. In other words, they can take shocks uh, up to a point and keep in their keep functioning pretty much in their present condition. Um, and those shocks could be things like uh, a heat wave, an unusually long dry period, and so on. But if it's within the normal pattern of climatic variability variability, ecosystems are pretty much adapted to that. Australian ecosystems are adapted to a fairly noisy, variable climate because we have that naturally. But I think what's happened here is that even though those ecosystems, our eastern forests, do have a high level of resilience, they do burn on occasion and so on, that's, not, that's nothing unusual. We've now hit record forcing factors in terms of climate. We've had exceptionally dry conditions over the last three years in the south, south, southeast, and the last year was exceptionally dry. We've had increasing heat year by year, decade by decade, and now we have the hottest year on record. So once you cross that critical um, coping point for these forests, then you can get a massive flip. And this is what we're seeing now is, is that these forests have been pushed over a threshold. They're so dry and it's so hot, they're in a condition that they just burn uncontrollably. Yes, well, there's the effect on the landscape itself, on the, on the fauna. And if you burn an area a few times, then it recovers. But if you burn it too often... It, it, or too hot. Or too... Okay, too hot, yeah. Now, the, let's talk about, I mentioned CO2, um, yeah. carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide. What are the effects of the emissions now that we've just seen? Yeah, I, ha I haven't seen an, an update in the last uh, two, three weeks, but earlier uh, when, when the area burnt was around 6 million, not 10 million hectares, I saw estimates of 200 to 250 million tonnes of carbon dioxide 
emitted by the fires. Now, to put this in perspective, Australia's um, industrial emissions of CO2 from burning coal, oil, and gas in all sectors of the economy, not just electricity, is around 530 million tons per year. So at that point, at 6 million hectares burnt, we were approaching half of our annual uh, CO2 emissions. Now, of course, the, 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 there's been more fires since that estimate. So I would put put our CO2 emissions probably between three and 400 million tons of uh, carbon dioxide. So these fires um, are approaching the, the annual total CO2 emissions from the Australian economy. Uh, now, with the international agreements, uh, does, does this have an effect on that? Are these counted in those it, Australia's emissions? Well, it depends on, on how you want to count them. Um, so, so emissions basically at the very fundamental level are, are of two types. There are emissions from fossil fuel usage and cement production. So these are industrial emissions. So they come obviously from electricity, transport, heating, heating and cooling, agricultural operations in terms of burning CO2 for tractors, also that, that sort of thing. And then there are land-based emissions, which are really comp- complex. So they can come anywhere from tilling soils, new soils, which emit CO2, clearing forests or growing forests, which then are negative emissions, they take up CO2, and disturbances like fires, insect infestations, and so on. So they're, they're much harder to calculate. They have larger error bars around them. Uh, and for, for a country like Australia, we're a little bit different from most other developed countries. Because when you take a European country, for example, the um, uh, industrial emissions absolutely dominate. Uh, but for Australia, we have a relatively small population uh, compared to the area. We're an entire continent. So our land emissions can become significant compared to our industrial CO2 emissions. And that's been proven out this year where, where the emissions from these fires are an order of magnitude bigger than they, than they ordinarily are. So they're going to play an extremely large role in Australia's emissions. Uh, but uh, do you know if they're accounted for in the international agreements? Well, they should be accounted for, uh, uh, and it, it depends on what our government wants to do. Uh, well, uh, we, we could get political, and uh, but I think it's pretty clear that they've already uh, traded on credits that we have left over from the Kyoto Agreement. So, uh, I, I, well, I think we let's can put it this way. I, I, would, I would describe that as a form of cheating. Uh, so if they're cheating on using the, the Kyoto credits, which, by the way, explicitly says in the Kyoto Agreement, any credits are not to be carried over into any subsequent period. It says that in the Kyoto Agreement. So we're Agreement. actually violating the, the Kyoto yes, Agreement. Yes, that's correct. Uh, okay, well, with that, uh, with that thought, I think we might uh, take a little music break here on Fuzzy Logic because... Uh, uh, I don't know, I just have to catch my breath when we, we talk about this thing and so our our track today is, uh, well that's probably appropriate on Fuzzy Logic and our guest is Professor Will Stephan, climate scientist <coughs> Oh, and just quickly before I forget uh, we have a column in the Canberra Times and today's column is a little gem and it's kind of loosely related to today it's the thing called the Jeevens Paradox. And popular conception of uh, efficiency is when you cut the price of something, you make it more efficient, that you'll drop the usage of it. 
but uh, I can see Will Stefan, my guest here today. Uh, you know the answer to this one, don't you, Will? Yeah. Uh, the answer is it becomes cheaper, so we use more of it. Yeah. <laughs> or if it becomes cheaper, we save money and we go spend it on something else that may emit even more emissions. <laughs> so, yes, we have some problems there in terms of how we deal with climate yes. change. And that says something, too, about the economic system. And we'll be talking more about solutions and where we go, how we think about the future uh, towards the end of our program. But uh, first, let's do a little bit of basic systems, Will, because uh, now I have a systems background, although not a science-based one. Uh, the concept of a system is a fairly subtle thing, but it's very deep. And you talk about the Earth system. Do you want to give us a quick 101 Earth system? Yeah, uh, very, very simply, if you look through the history of the planet, uh, what you see are two big components of the system, the so-called geosphere. That's the non-living part. That's the rocks. That's the physical ocean. Um, that's uh, chemical materials and so on. Uh, and then there's the biosphere, which actually arose fairly early on. So the Earth, the Earth itself is about 4.6 billion years old. Uh, and, of course, that's when the Earth system started. But it was a very simple system at the beginning because it was only geophysical. Uh, but somewhere between 3.5 and maybe closer to 4 billion years ago, life started appearing, uh, first with single-celled organisms and so on. So the biosphere started developing. Uh, and there was a com there's sort of been a common misconception that, in fact, this planet just happened to be right for life, and then it's been an accommodating environment, and life sort of fit in with this, this planet. But, in fact, life has actually helped develop the planet developed the Earth system. Uh, one of the most important events, of course, was the so-called Great Oxidation, uh, which changed the atmosphere totally uh, from one that had uh, very tiny amounts of oxygen to one that had 20 to 21 percent oxygen. It took about 300 million years to do that, but that was totally because of the biosphere because of so-called cyanobacteria. So, so basically what we know now when we try to understand, model, project changes to the Earth system, we have to understand an interactive geosphere and biosphere. So, so the two interact in multiple ways at multiple scales, and they form what we call emergent properties, properties of the system as a whole. So it's, 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 it's probably the most productive way of looking at the planet as a single system, the Earth system, with reasonably well-defined states and transitions between these states. Oh, so an example of that state would be the Holocene? Yes. So the Holocene is the most recent geological epoch. Uh, it was, uh, it's the latest interglacial period, so for about 1.2 uh, million years we've seen oscillations on about 100,000-year time intervals between long, uh, rather... Um, uh, uh, what would you say, rather rather cold uh, glacial states, uh, and then sh much shorter intervals of warm periods on about a 100 or so thousand year intervals. This latest one, the Holocene, is a little bit cooler than the three before it, but it lasts a little bit longer, and that's because of Earth's orbit around the sun. It's a little bit uh, more circular at the moment. So... Um, that means that, uh, on the other thing I should say, just as a way of, of, of comparison, is that the difference between the last ice age when 
a lot of the northern, northern hemisphere land was covered with ice. We had um, woolly mammoths running around and so on. That was only about four degrees colder than the Holocene in global average temperature. And already we're a bit more than one degree warmer going in the other direction. And we could reach four degrees of warming in a worst-case scenario later this century. That's the same temperature difference as between an ice age and a warm period, but in the opposite direction. So we are, uh, I think when you understand the Earth system, uh, particularly in its longer-term dynamics, you realize how significant climate change actually is. Yes, it's more than just being a little bit warmer. It's it's a driver of, or one of the key drivers of the, the climate, right? I'm just thinking of a, an analogy because you said uh, that the system flips state. Now, when I was camping dead in the bush, which... Uh, just before Christmas and I'm hoping that area wasn't one of the vast areas that have been burnt and we had a little campfire going and as the night goes on the the, the flames die down and you get this kind of system flipping between the state of flame and embers and I actually had it in my mind to write or or to see if we could do a column on this what is the difference between those two things but is that like a simple example of what you're talking about? I think the simplest example um, would be say take a kayak most people, some a lot of people have been on a kayak uh, and if you haven't you probably know what it is. Those things are designed to be very stable when you paddle uh, around on a lake, let's say we're going to use a, a, a kayak that's designed not for white water but uh, a lake and so on and you can tip it a little bit and it's okay but if you tip it just past a critical point it doesn't stay there it flips and you find yourself in the water so that's a good example of, of a tipping point a literal tipping literally point. a tipping point uh, yeah so that's one i often use to say you have two states of the kayak and not, nothing in between you have a stable state where you're upright you're on the water and you can bounce around a bit with waves or or you can tip it a bit or the other state is uh when it's tipped over and you're underwater well as the rider of a unicycle i know exactly what you mean yeah but uh it's it's a it's a rich example if we dig into that a bit further isn't it because it's the interaction of many parts so you've yeah. got the body weight of the 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 paddler yeah. you've got the paddles themselves and right. they, where they hit the water the water conditions the exactly. shape of the hull yes uh, maybe the wind so all these yes, things and waves all, yes that's right all, all, all coming together exactly uh, now and and if you're a, a resilient system the system is designed to handle variability of of all of those factors that hit it up to a point. Up to a point. Yeah. Right, well, a unicycle is, <laughs> is yeah. an inherently unstable system. <laughs> uh, you, now, you mentioned uh, yeah. ge- uh, geological eras, epochs, and so yes. on. The Anthropocene. Right. Uh, Anthropocene, what is it, and are we in it? Yeah, okay. Um, so there are two definitions of the Anthropocene. So, so basically, again, the Holocene is the reference period. The Holocene is about 11,700 years old. Um, it's, been a, it's been a very stable state of the Earth system. There's certainly been variability within it, particularly in terms of the water cycle. Temperature has varied about plus or minus half a degree within the Holocene. Uh, but, uh, and we know uh, the reasons for these things. But what's happening now is that we have pushed the Earth system well outside of the Holocene envelope of variability. Now, the first person who used that term uh, with respect to the Earth system was Paul Crutzen back in the year 2000. When he was looking at a whole mass of data 
uh, that we had gathered in this program you mentioned in the introduction, the International Geosphere Biosphere Program. So we gathered a massive amount of data. We were reviewing this data, and Paul had the insight to say a lot of these indicators that we were talking about had moved outside of the Holocene envelope of variability. And so he just interrupted in this discussion and said, because people were referring to the Holocene, and he said, stop talking about the Holocene. We're not in the Holocene. He was getting angry, actually. He said, we're not in the Holocene anymore. We're in the, and he was struggling for a word. Then he just blurted out, we're in the Anthropocene. Anthropos meaning humans. And it was all these human-driven changes. So the first usage of the term and concept was in an Earth system science context. So it's saying the Earth system this Holocene, which is a geologically defined epoch, but can also then be interpreted in terms of the rather tight range of conditions of the Earth's system that typify the Holocene. Now, the the nomenclature of uh, epochs is the international geographical... No, geologic. So, 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 so sorry, it's geological. It's the GTS, the geological time scale. Yes, sorry, I've, I've uh, mixed, mixed my words. Yeah. Now, I, I, I'm not up to date on this, but I understand, Is it, am I right, that the pro- proposition was put to them? Do you know what happened? The, the process is underway. So, so what happened is Paul, actually, when he first published this in a peer-reviewed paper, which is in 2002 in Nature. He proposed it, although it came out of Earth System Science. Paul immediately referenced it to the Holocene, not only from an Earth System point of view, but from a geological point of view. So he proposed the Anthropocene as a new epoch that would end the Holocene and start a new epoch. And do you think as a bunch of geologists, I shouldn't use that term lightly, uh, that their focus is on geology rather than biology, that they it, will... Well, it has to be. The geological timescale has its, its, its rules and regulations, uh, and that obviously has to be adhered to. So what the geological community has done, and I should say it's really the stratigraphical community because they're really the time, they're a subset of geologists. They're the timekeepers of, of planet Earth. They're the ones who, who develop, maintain, and continuously update the geological timescale. So they formed a thing called the Anthropocene Working Group. This was formed around 2008 or so, I think. Um, and uh, Paul was a member of that. Uh, I was a member of that from the beginning. Uh, it's had about 35 members, many of whom are professional stratigraphers. But I think, interestingly, because of the nature of the Anthropocene, it's included people outside of stratigraphy and even well, geology. The very, the very term anthropo means human. Yeah, so we've had some social scientists, historians, uh, very importantly historians, of course, in this, and I should actually mention one of them, uh, and that was John McNeil, an American historian, who actually, although he didn't use the term Anthropocene, he wrote a book, I think in uh, around late 90s or 2000, called Something New Under the Sun, uh, when he actually talked about the human side of, in a way, moving out of the Holocene. And th- there's some curious uh, little side effects of the Anthropocene in the strategic graphic layer, uh, I think that I've heard one will be the presence of uh, radioactive isotopes. Right. Uh, plastic? Oh, yes. 
and chicken bones. Yes, and and chicken. Well, 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 the, well. Bones of animals are are sometimes used uh, deeper in the stratigraphic record. And of course, we can see we can uh, unearth dinosaur bones and all sorts of bones. They give us insights into the conditions on Earth. Uh, and so on. Um, and of course, chickens originally come, they come from Southeast Asia. They were jungle fowl, uh, and they've been domesticated and so on. So we can actually track pre-chicken chicken bones, because they are in the strata, uh, and so on. And we can see enormous changes since the mid-20th century, when we started breeding chickens to be big, bigger, 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 and fatter. And so the leg Lay, bones... Laying more eggs. Uh, yes, and, and the um, leg bones and the breast bones have changed enormously in the period since the mid-20th century. And we see this in the, in, in the bones that are being laid down now. So anyway, getting back to what the, the um, Anthropocene Working Group is doing, it is examining the case for a geological Anthropocene. In other words, should this be formalized in the geological timescale? And after a decade of work, there was a formal vote of the Anthropocene Working Group with two questions. Is the Anthropocene real stratigraphically? And if so, should the base of the Anthropocene, in other words, the starting date, be placed around the mid-20th century, which is what Earth System Science is saying? And the vote was overwhelming. It was 29 to 4, yes, for both of those questions. Now, that doesn't formalize it. It has to go up to the next body, which is the um, the subcommittee on quaternary Stati- stratigraphy, which is the body that looks at, at the last three, four million years of Earth history. So they will consider this recommendation from their working group, the Anthropocene Working what, Group. What do you think the impacts of this classification would be on, on the, just the general public? I think it would be... Um, a real confirmation that humans are now driving changes of enormous significance to the history of the Earth. Uh, yes, it's, I guess it's going to be hard to argue against that. Well, our guest today on Fuzzy Logic, we might take a music break. Our guest, uh, Professor Will Stephan. Great pleasure to have you back on the right. show, uh, Will Stephan talking about climate, the bushfires, and when we come back after this break, let's talk a little bit about solutions. Where do we go? Because if we leave our listeners and ourselves, in fact, feeling demoralised that it's all hopeless, then why why even get up? Why not just blitz the backyard, spend more money on a four-wheel drive and, and give up? Here on Fuzzy Logic. Falling Homeless in home 
you feel? Can you feel it falling all around here? Can you hear? Can you hear? Can you hear us cracking underneath? Do you think? Do you think that there is a whole world under here? I can only hope. I can only ever find out. My whole damn world is slipping, sliding to the. And uh, a bit of music here on Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. And that was from a friend of Fuzzy Logic, uh, Michael Bayless. And the music is called Counting Backwards. And his group's called Shock Octopus. (laughs) Uh, And interesting uh, lyrics there by Michael. Now... Our guest today on Fuzzy Logic is Professor Will Stefford. We are talking about climate. We were talking about the Anthropocene just before the song break. And I did promise that we were going to start talking a bit about solutions where we go. So at least we get a sense of what what can we do. Well, there are a lot of things we can do. And I would start with, again, uh, not surprisingly with what the science says we need to do, to stabilize the climate system. Uh, and that is, um, we need to get our greenhouse gas emissions down around the world by about 50 to 60 percent by 2030, and then get the rest out by around 2040, 2045. And that would stabilize, stabilize the climate at roughly the Paris target, somewhere between 1.5 and 2 degrees temperature rise. Oh, sorry, were you, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. Were you talking about implying negative emissions then after the 2030s? Is that what you're... No, it, it's, what, 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 I'm, what I'm saying is that we need to get, cut our emissions in half or a bit more by 2030 and then get the other half of our emissions out. In other words, reduce the rest of them to, to zero by 2040, 2045. Oh, okay. Is this what you call the carbon budget? Yeah, we use the carbon budget. This is sort of a, a, a targets and timetable. But if you can picture in your mind a line on a graph, a graph of time starting in 2020 
and going out to 2045. That line has to go from where we are today, emissions which would be on the vertical axis, down to zero by, say, 2045. But that line has to have dipped by about half by 2030 as an interim target. Is this to make the two-degree target? It, it's it, it's to yes and and to make hopefully maybe a tenth or two below two degrees, but certainly I don't think that sort of trajectory will get us to one point five. We've got to be exceedingly drastic to get to one point five, and we almost surely have to learn how to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere to get one to one point five. Well, we are locked into additional uh, climate change or, or warming, aren't we already that we haven't yet experienced because there's a lag. There's a lag because because not over 90% of the heat is going into the ocean. The ocean's an enormous uh, body of, of water stores, enormous amount of heat. It uh, has circulation patterns that, that mean that it takes a while for it to equilibrate with the atmosphere. The atmosphere sort of gets whipsawed by what happens in the ocean because of the huge differential in heat. About Only about 1% of the heat from extra greenhouse gases in, is in the atmosphere. Uh, so, so, so small, subtle changes in ocean circulation can cause fairly big changes to uh, atmospheric conditions. So we, we tend to think about climate as being the atmosphere. Mm. So would you say that's a bit distorted, that really it's more about the oceans that yeah, if we happen to be a marine creature instead of a land creature, we would have a completely different view of climate change because uh, we'd be stuck in the ocean. We'd be feeling what the ocean is, is feeling and so on. So two degrees, uh, is it possible, do you think? I think it's still possible, um, but I think it's only possible if there is a quite sharp, dramatic shift in fundamentally our, our societies, who we think we are, why we are on the planet, how we organize ourselves, and how we're going to go into the future. It's anything close to business as usual is not going to work in my view. So would you agree then that it's not the science that's lacking, it's not the technology that's lacking, it's that two kilos of fatty stuff on the top of our heads. It's, it's humans and the way we think. Is that the biggest thing that has to oh, change? Oh, ab- absolutely. It's our value system. It's who actually we think we are uh, and how do we relate to the rest of life on Earth and so on. It's not about um, either scientific or economic equations and so on. Uh, to, to, to make this practical, if, if, if you, uh, that's very, very theoretical. But let's put this into practice. What should Australia do to do our fair share to actually meet the Paris targets. And let's just say one day, most people can think one decade ahead. So let's just think 2030. Where should Australia be in 2030? My view is we should have reduced our emissions using a 2005 baseline by at least 50%. Going towards 60% would be better. And we should start from now, I'm saying now, today, no new fossil fuel developments of any kind. No new gas. Forget about all the proposed unconventional gas in the NT and WA. Forget it. Just stop it. No new coal mines. No extensions of coal mines. No new fossil fuel developments. Any of that is incompatible with the Paris targets. We need to be really clear about this. So this, And those are two things we could do. We could simply legislate that we will phase no new fossil fuel developments and between now and 2040 we will phase out the existing ones we will put money time and effort into just transitions of communities and peoples that are affected by this 
uh, but we will also start building the new economy really fast. And you only have to look at the ACT to start looking at what that might look like. You go to 100% renewables, all right? You're going to generate employment. You're going to actually spread the energy system, distribute it more, uh, uh, more regionally. So you're going to put more development into regional centers, not just with big power plants next to the capital cities. It'll be cleaner. Uh, and you can actually roll out renewables very fast. In fact, we already are to a large extent. And you talked about the resilience of a system. So a single point of failure is a big-ass coal yeah. station, is it yeah. not? Yeah, absolutely. And and, and we, we saw that in, in South Australia where that storm came through when... The, when uh, there was a problem with the distribution system. There was only one line. It went down. Uh, we've seen it before when uh, a gas peaking plant couldn't ramp up in time to prevent a blackout, but Elon Musk's battery did. It put, I don't know how many megawatts into the system in a fraction of a second. So we have the technology. We know how to generate electricity uh, at economically feasible costs. We know how to build different types of grids. We know how to build storage systems. By God, we've got two big batteries in Tasmania and Snowy Hydro. Uh, we know how to build other big batteries like, like Musk's battery. So technology is not holding us back. Economics is not holding us back. But politics is holding us back. Yeah. I, I, and I'm sure you're following the uh, political developments in the USA. Not that I want to no. delve into no. the, uh, the, the terrible things that are happening there. But let's look at the bright side and the Green New Deal, so-called. What's your take on that? Well, look, I think there's, there's enormous uh, action in the U.S., but it's sub-national action. Uh, and I think the issue there is similar to the issue here, is you have a lot of blockages from the national government and you have blockages um, from the powerful vested interests and also you have very powerful, um, highly biased news media. Think Fox News, think Sky News, the Murdoch Press here, uh, which are um, absolutely diabolical in terms of, of stopping a- any reasonable action. Because we, we could talk about Green New Deals, we could talk about all sorts of things. These actually aren't going to happen until we fundamentally change the politics in these countries. What's it going to take to achieve that change of thinking? I think we need uh, mass civil action of the type that uh, Gandhi did in India, of the type that uh, Nelson Mandela did in South Africa. Um, dignified, peaceful, but absolutely resolute, uh, involving enormous numbers of people who say we do not accept the political system and the incredibly biased, influenced, uh, biased and influenced by the fossil fuel industry by the right-wing media. This is simply unacceptable in a world that's heading toward a disastrous future. We absolutely need to stop this. We have to stop it now. The students actually are the leaders. The students are the Nelson Mandela of this era. They're out there first, and it's interesting they are because it's their future. It's not really my future. I'm old enough that I'll never feel the worst of climate change, biosphere degradation, inequality, all growing, but they will, and they sense it. Well, well, I, I was kind of hoping, dare I say, for a sense of hope and to hear you say that our future with, with our children and our, what our children are doing shaping their future and they are the sort of seeds of change and I, I actually feel a little surge of hope when, when you say that. Absolutely. We need to support the students. We need to be out there with them. Uh, we, we, that, that you, 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 no one will give you hope. 
you generate hope. And you only generate hope in this sort of situation by acting. You can do all sorts of things. You can lobby people. You can write letters. You can scream up and down about the Murdoch press and say, get him out of the system. Why do we have the Australian newspaper handed out at bloody airports? It's a disgrace. It should be taken off. Things like that. We can actually demand that things change. And we can support our students. We can get out on the streets in peaceful demonstrations to say, the status quo of the direction we're going is disastrous. We need fundamental change. Well, one of those fundamental changes that I wanted to ask you about was the Green New Deal is fantastic. It's a a very ambitious, broad-scale package of, of changes. But one thing it doesn't say a lot about is growth. And we are addicted to economic growth. It's always consume more, more population. So we've added a billion people to the planet in the past, I think it's 10 or 15 years, something like that. And we are heading towards eight, nine, 10, who knows, billion people. And I've seen statistics and it shows that you could do something like, uh, uh, avoid an overseas flight or you get a solar energy for your home and you might save one or two tons of carbon but one extra person on the planet is equivalent to something like uh, I should have written it down 60 or 70, 80 tons I, th- I think there's a bit of misconception here Population is an issue, but it isn't the biggest issue. The biggest issue is the high-consumption Western lifestyle. And as that spreads to developing countries as it is, that's the issue. In my view, the good news is birth rates are dropping dramatically, not just in the Western world, but also in a lot of the developing world. So the the projections at at which population will stabilize are actually coming down. Uh, I think even now we're probably not going to hit 10 billion people. Birth rates are dropping fast, very fast. The problem is there'll be a surge as the the people who are young now become into the reproductive years. So there's a lag of a few decades between peak population and birth rate hitting net zero. But there is good news there. The problem is, and we actually analyzed this in some work on the Anthropocene, the biggest impact is not population, it's consumption per capita. Well, it's it's uh, population and times consumption. Consumption times technology, if you times use the technology. iPad equation. Yes. But, if, but we analyzed the Anthropocene using that equation, and the biggest factor was consumption. It did, was bigger than population. Did uh, was it, was that a qualitative or no quantitative? quantitative. Oh, yeah. you did. So yeah. okay, so you, ha- you actually put some numbers into yeah. a model to show that. Yeah, it's it's the very crude um, um, Holdren Ehrlich IPAT model, which which um, has been heavily criticised at small scales, probably with good reason. But at, at big aggregate scales, it's not bad. So the IPAT is impact equals. P, population, A, affluence, which is consumption, and T, technology, which is the technology you use to produce the stuff you consume. So that's energy systems, manufacturing systems, and so on. Okay. Where where does uh, waste come into that model? Uh, It comes in through the technology side of things, technology plus consumption. So consumption generates waste, uh, but but the type of waste and the amount depends on technology too. So so basically what we did was we used population is pretty easy to quantify. That's the number of human beings. Um, Consumption was was, um, global GDP. So in that and and consumption... um, uh, does relate pretty well with G- scale with GDP. For technology, we used patents. So number of patents, uh, which relates to new technologies and so on. So that's the so-called iPad. And when we when we made a three-dimensional figure 
of that, and I think we had data up to 2011 or 2012, um, consumption was the biggest axis. Okay. Well, let's let's pivot now to a little bit of a more personal question, Will, and what was it that got you, we only have a couple of minutes left, but uh, so not your full life story, what was it that got you towards climate? Well, I I think it was, my my career's been a bit meandering. Um, I'm trained as a chemist. Uh, and uh, and even before that, um, my first degree is from uh, University of Missouri in America, and I was a chemical engineer. Engineers have to think in systems. So in, when, by, by our senior year, we were actually designing um, en- chemical engineering, you know, oil refineries, this sort of thing. Uh, but the interesting thing, when I look back on it, is the internal thing was the system. We had to make the whole system work. But then there was the pipe that just went out that we didn't think about. An externality. And, and, that, and, and now I, I worry about the pipe at the end of my system. <laughs> so that, that's how I got started in all this. <laughs> uh, yes, you, you remind me of an uh, international uh, energy expert uh, from the oil business, and he yeah. talked to me about a refinery that he worked on. Yeah, so. uh, but uh, now, where where do you see the future? Will what are you working on now? What's your next thing? Uh, so so now I'm working really in the area of earth system science. Uh, a group of us just published a paper in a new Nature Reviews journal. It was out only two weeks ago on the evolution of this new science of trying to understand the planet as a system. Uh, and and of course this goes there's some major steps it goes back to James Lovelock and Gaia, goes back to Vernadsky before him. It goes to the huge NASA, uh, NASA um, in America, the effort in the 1980s. It goes back to the remote sensing and this this beautiful blue marble that we saw from Apollo 11, uh, and all that stuff. But I think when you look in the future and you actually try to do a systems diagram, you know, we 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 physical scientists love boxes and arrows and diagrams. But now the most important one in that whole Earth system box is the human one. It's us humans. Uh, Sitting in with, now we have the geosphere and the biosphere and what we call the anthroposphere as a third part and the one that now is driving the whole Earth system, the trajectory of the system. Well, that's probably a good note on which to, <laughs> to thank you for your time. Oh, and uh, I mentioned that uh, today's Ask Fuzzy in the Canberra Times and regional papers is about a thing called Jeevan's Paradox. Well, I've written another thing which could go into our list of Anthropocene things. Well, a little tidbit, uh, barbed wire. A barbed wire has had a huge, mm, absolutely huge impact on uh, social systems, economic system, landscapes, oh, ecosystems for sure, ecosystems, and uh, in war as oh. well. And you think of those poor people in the trenches as well. Yeah. Well, Stefan, it's been a great privilege. Thanks, and, Rod. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, fascinating to talk to you today, and uh, all the best. And like Will says, get out there, get active, because we have only one planet, and no planet B, as they say. Plenty more coming up on Fuzzy Logic. Catch you later.